The following message was recorded at Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org. Father, thank you that you've given us this gift of faith, Lord, that we can trust not what we hear inside of our own head, but we can trust what you declare about us. And so, um, Lord, we we come today to gather together as your people, God, to be reminded, one, of who you are, but who you say that we are, God, uh, and what you say that we can know. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be welcomed, God, that each of us individually, that we would would create a space, Lord, where we would welcome you, God, um, where we would say that we, we hate sin, God, that we want to... Um, to repent, to give up uh, on these old ways of living, God, that we would embrace this new life that you are, um, you are giving to us, that you are leading us in. And so we need you. Uh, we come and, and we confess that we can't do it on our own, God, uh, and that we want you to empty us of ourselves, Lord, that you would fill us more with you. God, for that is when life is at its, uh, it's at its greatest pleasure, God, when, we, uh, when there's less of us and more of you. And so hear our, hear our prayer, and, uh, and we thank you that uh, we can have confidence that you hear and that you will answer. It's in your name we pray, Christ. Amen. Awesome. Good to be with you guys. Good morning. How you doing? Good? You liking the weather outside? I feel like, man, if it was like this all year round, I wouldn't complain. Uh, so we are in First John, and we're actually finishing up First John. So this is going to be our last week in this book. Uh, I'm kind of sad. I've really, really enjoyed First John. Um, First John has been one of the most pivotal books as far as even early on in my Christian life and continually uh, in my Christian life. And so uh, if you have, please go ahead and grab uh, your Bible, uh, pull it out. Um, we're going to be in First John chapter 5, uh, verses 13 through 21. Uh, and as this is our last week kind of going through the book, uh, I wanted to uh, do a little bit of summary on the front side. So we remember, because really what these last nine verses are about is that they're summarizing the themes that we've seen throughout the book of First John, right? And, and if you've been with us for any time, John likes to repeat himself. So we've, we've heard these themes before. It's not the first time. Uh, and so he's very cyclical. He, he talks about the same things over and over again, but he puts it in a little different slant. Um, and we know that, that First John was written likely 85 to 95 uh, A.D., um, perhaps was written to the church at Ephesus uh, that was going through a lot of division. Uh, there was a, a, a part of their church that left, that, uh, that went out from them. And John says it was revealed that they actually weren't with them, that though they looked like they were genuinely Christians, they weren't. And it was evidence because they left. And the reason that they left was that they were led astray by these false teachers that said, what you really need to know is it's not really important about obedience, it's really about this secret knowledge. And so they denied certain parts of who Jesus uh, is, and and, uh, they denied certain doctrinal truths. But they also said it really didn't matter about how you lived or how you act. It really mattered what you knew. And we see often this same truth. Really, it doesn't matter if you show any signs of repentance, but just pray a prayer. Walk an aisle. You know, you made a decision in the past, and all of these things are used. And that's very similar to what they would have said. Well, we have this knowledge, and therefore this is what marks us as really being true. Uh, And John writes against that. And so uh, throughout our, our, you know, 10 weeks or so in First John, uh, we've talked about these big themes that John is really impressing upon us. And so I just want to go through those again. Uh, the first theme that John is really emphasizing and that is that he wants 
us to learn what it means to be loved and to love. He wants us to learn what it means to be loved and to love. 1 John 3.16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Notice that in order to love, you must first be loved. And if you have not received love, then you have no power to love. And so John says that if you have any hope of loving, truly loving, not superficial, not shallow, not merely just emotional love, but truly deep, profound, world-shaking love, then you need to first be loved. You need to know the God that, that is the source of love, is the one that identifies and personifies love. And that you have to at least be open to receiving that love for yourself. And so he asks us that question, have you received the love of God truly? Do you just articulate it or have you actually allowed it to come and to, uh, to envelop your life, to transform who you are, to identify you? And he says that once it does that, it, will, it doesn't just stop there. The way that you know you've embraced God's love is that you can't stop loving other people. Because it, it, God's love, it, it starts working in you and then it works through you into other people's lives. And so John is wanting to take us to school on what it means to love. He's, he's put us in class over and over again. Uh, and he, it, he's talking about the theme over because he says, listen, it's easy to understand. It's not complicated. It's costly. It's costly. It's not complicated. This idea of love, it's not complicated, but it's costly. And so that's, the, that's one of the big themes that First John is about. The second one is that John wants to clarify for us what it means to follow Jesus. He wants to clarify for us what it means to follow Jesus. If you go out uh, on the street or you go out to you know, any public place, you ask people, you know, do you follow Jesus? A lot of people say, yeah, I like Jesus. Yeah, sure, Jesus is awesome. And, and so too, in, in their day, there was a group that said, yeah, Jesus, like Jesus, follow Jesus. And John wants to clarify, what does that mean? What, what do you mean that you follow Jesus, that you, uh, you're with him? And so he clarifies that throughout the book over and over and over again. And the way that he does it is through three tests. He says these are objective ways that you can see in our own life, right? Ultimately, we don't know. I can't sit there and look at somebody's life and say, I 100% know that they are a Christian, right? I mean, there are evidences. I mean, I can tell you that like, you know, you look at a tree, you say it's bearing fruit. Okay, well, it looks like it's a real tree. I mean, I suppose somebody could have woken up the night before and plastered a bunch of fruit on it. A lot of work, but it's possible, you know? So you can see that there's evidences it looks like, but no person out can objectively look outward and say, I know 100% this person is in fact a Christian. But John gives evidences for us to look in our own life. And he says, these should be clarifications in our own life, whether we really do know Jesus or not. Because he wants to assure those that really are genuine, and he wants to warn those that think that they are and aren't. Because there are people that think that they're a Christian, and they're not. And usually, I find this a lot of times, is usually the people that are Christians often have this oversensitive conscience, and he wants to assure them. And then the people that aren't Christians, but think that they are, have this really hardened heart that he's got to like break through. And so the three tests that John talks about is first, social. And what this means is you can, this is called the, the love test, right? Is this a, the social test is, are you loving one another? You can't say that I love God, that I'm following Jesus, and yet you don't, you don't love other Christians. You don't have really any intimate relationship with other Christians. You don't give to other Christians. You don't sacrifice anything for other Christians. Because that, that doesn't make any sense. 
the way, one of the profound ways that you will know that you are born of God is that you will find a newfound love for people that otherwise you had nothing in common with. Amen? Right, anybody? I mean, when I like became a Christian, like all of a sudden I started loving people that like there was no explanation for why we would like get along or hang out. I mean, we're different in age, we're different in occupation, we're different in hobbies, we're different in everything. And yet all of a sudden God has brought this love, this care for other people that are radically different. And you see, this is what our culture is so longing for. Our culture wants this diversity, right? This unity and diversity, but the gospel does it. The gospel gives us this radical love for people that are vitally different in all these other ways because there is the most profound unity in Jesus. And he produces this love for other people. And so he gives us the social test. The second test is the moral test or the obedience test. Are you walking in light as Jesus is in the light? 1 John 1, 6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Do you actually obey God? Not like when God tells you to do things that you want to do. Do you obey God when he calls you to do things that cost you? When he says that you need to get out of a relationship, when he says that you need to give more than what you thought, when he he says that you need to deny yourself in some aspect, when he calls you to make promises and keep them, do we actually obey what God calls us to obey? Because this is one of the things that he does in us is that he gives us a delight in doing his will. You see, what's delightful is no longer rebelling against God and doing what we want. Instead, we find that it's, it's, far, it's far more delightful and there's far greater pleasure in doing what God wills and what he wants. And so that's the second test. And the third test is doctrinal or, uh, or belief. What do you believe about Jesus? 1 John 4, 2 through 3, it says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Listen, there are false doctrines about Jesus, and they're from hell. I mean, that's what he's saying, is that there's a spirit of Antichrist that seeks to lead people astray. And so people that say, I like Jesus, doesn't mean, you got to stop and ask, what Jesus are you talking about? Mormons say that they love Jesus. Jehovah Witnesses say that they love Jesus. They're not talking about the same person. I mean, you, you can say that, hey, I know Trevor, but when you start saying that he, I'm 6'10 and I'm, you know, 480, you're talking about a different Trevor. I mean, so we've got to talk about the right person here. And so too, when we start talking about Jesus, we have to know who are we talking about. And, and John clarifies that Jesus. He says, this Jesus was fully man. He was in the flesh. He wasn't just a phantom. He wasn't just a ghost or just a spirit. He lived on planet earth. He walked, he ate, he drank, he slept. He felt emotion. He felt tired. He had pain. But not only was he fully human, he was also fully God. He had in all of the aspects of perfection, of obedience, of grace. When, and, and this is one of the reasons they wanted to kill him. They called blasphemy because Jesus came and said, he could forgive sins. Now listen, if, if someone came up and, uh, I don't know, they, they wronged you, maybe they stole from you or they punched you, and I came up and was like, yeah, I forgive you for them, you'd be like, hey, whoa, wait a second, that's mine to forgive. You know, like, you're not me. You can't step in my place and start forgiving people for stuff that they did to me. And that's what Jesus does, is he steps into the map and he says, listen, oh yeah, you did that against God, well, I forgive you. And the Pharisees flip out. They're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Who are you to start forgiving sins on God's behalf? 
And the reason he did that is because he says, I am God. I'm equal with God. I'm one with him. And so that he, he says who we say Jesus is. He's fully God. He's fully man. But he also came and he died. John says that he's a propitiation. It means that he took the full wrath of God in order that we would be given grace. And so what you believe about Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection matter. Jesus wasn't just a good moral example that we're intended to follow. Jesus came to be a sin bearer. It means that he came for the purpose of taking the debt that we owe in order that he would give the free gift of life that he deserved. And so who you think about Jesus, what you believe about him, it matters. It matters. So these three tests, right? The social love, the, the moral uh, light, are we obeying? And then the doctrinal, who do we say about Jesus? These are tests, they clarify if we really are genuinely following Christ, if we really know him, or if we don't. And the, the third thing that John, uh, the third big theme that we've highlighted is that John is writing this to bring uh, encouragement and assurance. Encouragement and assurance. So the Gospel of John, also written by the same guy, uh, he, he wrote that to be evangelistic, right? John twenty thirty one. he says, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So if you're meeting with someone that's not a Christian, you know somebody that's not a Christian, the Gospel of John, really good recommendation. Have them start reading that. If they're a baby Christian, they just have come to know Christ, really good recommendation, First John. So just so you guys know, those are really good books to partner together as far as helping someone to come to know Christ and helping someone to grow up in Christ. Um, but then he goes on, and, and John writes these four things. If you want to know, he writes four things for the purpose for why he's writing the book. So in 1 John 1, 4, he says, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So John wrote the book that he might have more joy. Sounds selfish, right? Like I'm writing this book so that my joy would increase. But he, he's hitting on something that's fundamental to the Christian faith, and it's this. It's that it's more blessed to give than to receive that John believes that he actually gains when he gives. That as he gives away the testimony, the knowledge that God has imparted to him, it actually increases his joy. If you want to be miserable, hang on to your life. Hang on to your life, hang on to your stuff, hang on to your relationship, and you will, you'll, you'll have a very clear path to misery. If you want to have a path to joy and to peace and to abundance, give your life away. Give your possessions away, give your relationships away, and find that God will increase your joy more than what you could ever expect. Second thing is he says in 1 John 2, 1, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. John cares about our holiness. He wants us to be set apart unto God. If you want to have a life that's not wasted, if you want to look back on your years and say, I didn't waste my life, then you will walk in holiness. You see, all the missional practices we've talked about, they're great things, but if you're not walking in holiness, they will have no impact. They will have no effect. The lives that make the greatest impact are the ones that are pursuing God because he endows, he endows his power to those that seek him, those that humble themselves before him. He uses them. Third is that he writes to protect them from false teachers. 1 John 2.26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. He wants them to be illuminated. He doesn't want them to be led astray like sheep. He wants to be a good shepherd and guide them. And then what we'll see today, 1 John 5, 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may 
know that you have eternal life. So we've talked about, the, you know, he, he wrote this for assurance. And one of the biggest questions of this whole book is where is the assurance of your salvation found? How do you, why should you be assured that you're a Christian or that you're not? Some people, they rest their assurance in this past decision. Well, long ago, I prayed a prayer. I walked an aisle. I felt emotion when someone shared the gospel with me. And listen, I'm not discounting that those things are good, that, that you should have experiences like that. What I'm saying is that that should not be the hub of what you center your assurance in. What John is saying is that your assurance of salvation, it should be centered in a present posture, a present posture of confession of sin and repentance. Listen, if you're here and your heart is hardened against sin and you're, you're in unrepentant, rebellious sin, John would warn, John would caution you in saying, be wary. Do you know, do you know if you're in Christ? Because what the Holy Spirit does is the Holy Spirit moves in us, convicts us, leads us to repentance. Now, I'm not saying that you can't be a, a Christian and struggle with sin at all. John's not a perfectionist by any means. He says that we are Christians. We are going to sin. I mean, the Proverbs says it like this. It says that a righteous man falls down seven and gets up eight, right? That word, that seven, it's the number for completion. And what it's saying there is saying that, listen, the righteous man, all he does is fall down, right? All he does is stumble. But yet the, the important part isn't the fact that he's stumbling. It's what happens when he does. It's that he gets back up. He has this present posture of confession of sin and repentance from it. And so, but and John would, would caution us. He's saying, listen, if your heart is hardened against sin, be wary. Do you know him? Because God's work in our life doesn't lead us to be apathetic or indifferent to sin. It leads us to hate it. It leads us to confession of it and repentance from it. I've lived in my life in that place where I've been a disobedient Christian. I know I've been walking unrepentant sin. And can I tell you, there's no more joyless place. It robs your peace and it leaves you with, with lack of purpose. And so he, he wants us to understand that our assurance of salvation is found in this present posture of confession of sin and repentance from it. So that was a very long overview. I promise the rest of it will not be as, uh, will be as long. All right, so first, let's read our passage. First John five thirteen through 21. 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sin that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We will talk about that. Verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is God's word. So the big idea is that God wants us to have confidence about our relationship with him. 
God wants us to have confidence about our relationship with him. This confidence comes through the knowledge that he has given us. God gives us a knowledge that would lead us to be confident that we can know, genuinely know him. So there's five things in the passage. If you do a careful reading of it, he lists five things that we can have certainty about. John's not really for indifference. He's not like a wishy-washy gray area. He's black or white. And so he writes five things that we can have confidence in, that we can know, that God wants us to know. So uh, he writes that we can know that we have eternal life, that we can know that God hears and answers prayer, that we can know that we can have victory over sin, that it is possible to overcome sin in our lives, that we can know that we belong to God. And number five, that we can know him who is true. We can know him who is true. So let's dig into that. Verse 13, we can know that we have eternal life. Verse 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So the first thing I want us to focus on is he says that we believe in the name of the Son of God, in Jesus' name. Now, we've talked about this theme before, that there is power in Christ's name. Now, what I mean by that is, say, for example, we go out to the Ritz-Carlton, and I say, hey, I'm going to put you up for a night, you know, and... Once again, this is not me with my finances, but just say, you know, you have a rich person that has a bunch of money. They're able to do that. You know, they, they're like, hey, we're going to put you up. You know, we're going to give you a full week and we're going to pay for all your, all your meals. And you're like, oh, that sounds pretty good. I like that. All right. You know, you walk into the hotel and all of a sudden the clerk there says, uh, under whose name is the reservation? Right. You turn around and you look at the person you came with and you're like, under so-and-so's name, their name's the reservation because I'm not paying for it. Right? And you do that. Why? Because that person's name signifies what? That they have got what they said. It, it, it signifies that they're wealthy, that they're rich, that they, they've got something that you couldn't afford, something that you couldn't pay for. And our faith is in Jesus' name. When, what that means is it means when we come before God, we say, listen, don't charge my account. I'm morally bankrupt, but I got somebody, they've got fat pockets, all right? And their moral account, it's rich, it's overflowing. And so charge it to them. And so that's what happens is that we believe in Jesus's name, not in our name, not in our ability. We believe in Jesus's name, right? In his perfection, in his obedience. And so we trust in that, in his resume. And we step up and we say, I believe not in my resume, not in my name, but Jesus has done an exchange and he'll step up and he claims us as his own. And so we believe in his name. And he says that we can, he wants us to know that we have eternal life, right? That, that idea of knowledge. Have you ever been in a relationship where it's uncertain? I don't know about you. I, there've been several relationships when I was dating where you're like, I don't really know what they think about me. Like I, they might, you know, you're picking the flowers. Do they love me? They love me not. And you're kind of in this like uncertain period you know, and what does that do? That, that uncertainty, it creates insecurity, right? You're like, is there something about me? Do they not like my personality? Do they, did I like say something wrong, right? You've got all these insecurities that start popping up because you're unsure of how they feel about you. And so what does that insecurity do though? That insecurity, oftentimes it drives pride. You either try to prove yourself or it drives, it drives uh, depression and feelings of worthlessness, or you start saying, well, forget them. I'm going to find somebody else. And you start and you reject them and you go find somebody else that'll, that'll like give you a guarantee. But oftentimes maybe they're not that good, but you just go for a sure thing because you're, you know, you're, you're afraid. And so God says, God doesn't want us to be insecure about how he feels about us, about what he wants from us. God says, listen, I want you to know, 
I want you to know how I feel about you. I want you to know that I, I love you. I, I accept you. I care for you, not because you are worthy, but because I have paid your debt, because I am gracious, because I am loving. I want you to know that there is a guarantee with me. That knowledge, when you, when you know, and I'm so grateful for my marriage because I have no doubt about that. I have no doubt with my wife about how we care about one another. And that brings that security, it brings confidence. It means I'm not looking around the next corner for who's next. It means I'm secure. I know where I'm at. I know where I'm going because I know who I'm with. That's what God wants from us. As he says, listen, I want you to know how I feel. I want you to feel that same way that there would be confidence in our relationship that you're not looking for other things to satisfy. You're not looking at your job. You're not looking at your marriage. You're not looking at your income, your finances. You're not looking at all these other things to satisfy. Why? Because our relationship is solid. It's firm. And therefore, you know where you're at. He says, I want you to know. I want you to know that you have eternal life. Right in that last part, eternal life. I was thinking about that. I was mowing the grass and just meditating on eternal life. Like how mind-boggling is that? You know, I mean, like we've been given, I've been given some amazing gifts in life, but, but if somebody, you know, like, I mean, eternal life, like that's a crazy gift. Like that's insane. I mean, for somebody to walk up and say, hey, you're, you're never going to die. You're never going to die. And by the way, not only are you never going to die, but life is just going to get better. Like, it doesn't mean you're going to go through some hardships here, but, but once you get over this, like, little phase of life, it's great. You know, I mean, some people tell you that. They're like, well, listen, after you get out of high school, college is just phenomenal. You just got to endure the high school phase, you know, or the middle school phase or whatever, you know. I mean, God's saying that. Listen, like, I know that life can be hard right now, but listen, once you get through this, it's great. Like, it's awesome. Eternal life is phenomenal. And so he, he's saying, listen, when we understand what God is giving us in eternal life, we can endure this life because we realize that it is but a pittance of what we are going to taste. It is but a small portion of what our life is really about. And it makes us give away our life. We don't become so stingy, right? If this is the only life we have, then man, I gotta hold on to everything. I gotta, I gotta squeeze every drop of experiences. Man, if I'm not traveling, then man, I'm not living life. You know, if I'm not, you know, if I don't have a high income, then man, I'm not really living life. If I'm not, you know, if my family isn't the exact way, then I'm not really living life. And we got to try to squeeze every ounce of life out because this is all we got. But if, but if this life isn't it, if this life is just a shadow, just a, a foretaste of something that's infinitely better, then how can we not give away our life? Because we know that even the best experiences here are dull comparisons of what we're going to taste then. He wants us to know that we have eternal life. Second thing is that he, he wants us to know that God answers prayer. He wants us to know that God hears and answers prayer. Verses 14 through 17, he says, And this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sin that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. We're going to get to that really complicated, weird section, but before we do that... Let's talk about the clear section. So first, 
he says, I want to ask this question. Do you have confidence in your prayer life? When you approach God, do you really believe that God's going to hear and answer your prayers? Or do you just kind of like throw it up like, I hope something sticks. You know, like you're like throwing darts. Like, I hope I hit something. You know, do you have confidence in your prayer life with God? That he really does hear you, that he knows you, that God's not just reluctant. Like, oh, well, you prayed about a thousand and one times. And so I guess I'll finally have to give it to you. No, like God genuinely does desire to answer prayer. He hears you. He knows you. Do you have that kind of confidence in your life? Because if you don't, then your prayer life is going to be terrible, right? Your, ter- your, your prayer life is only going to happen when you're really desperate. And you're like, well, I guess I've run out of other options. I guess I'm finally going to have to pray. Because you don't really believe that God hears prayer or answers it. But if you believe that God hears your prayers and he answers it, then it's not going to be your last resort. It's going to be your first resort. You're going to say, why would, I, why would I bank on me? Why would I bank on anything else if I've got God that wants to be my first option? And so we'll go to him first. And so do you have confidence that God hears and answers prayer? Now, notice this. He says that there are some conditions, right? It doesn't mean that every prayer you're going to get, God's going to be like, yep. You know, I mean, I, I mean have you seen Bruce Almighty? Right? Have you seen, like, you know, where he gets, you know, he, just, he types in, you know, God gives power, you know, his power to him for a season, and he gets all these prayer requests, he gets overwhelmed by it, and, uh, and so he just clicks yes to all the prayer requests, right? And everybody wakes up the next day, and they're like, you know, the lottery was split, you know, 50,000 different ways, and, you know, some people got, some people got fired, some people got hired, I mean, it's just a mess of things. And so God doesn't always answer yes, Right, there are, some, there are some conditions. Right? One of the conditions is that he says that we ask according to his will. We ask according to his will. Right? A lot of times, we ask according to our will. We're like, hey God, I think this is a great idea. Why don't you bless my great idea? Right? And God says, no, we are to ask according to his will. And let me just put this as a precursor. If you're asking according to God's will, are you actually doing God's will right now? Because if you're not doing God's will, then let me just take a venture. You're probably not knowing how to pray God's will. And so praying God's will starts first with us obeying God's will with what he's revealed to us. And so God has made evident, very clear in scripture, a lot of different things are regarding his will. Are you being generous with what he's given to you? Are you loving the people in your life sacrificially? Are you walking in integrity? Have you confessed your sin or are you walking in unrepentant, hidden sin? God desires that we would live his will out. And as we live his will, that will, that will inform and guide us praying his will. And so there are four things though. Say, you know, I'm, I, you got a heartbeat that says, I want to obey your will, God. I, wanna, I want what you say. I want to do that. And so teach me how to pray. There's four ways that God answers prayers. All right, there's four different ways that God answers prayers. There's yes. There's no, there's sometimes he says, just wait a second. And then there's other times where he says, yes, but it's going to look different. And so there's, and we see these four different ways in scripture. So in the book of Acts, Peter is early on, Peter is thrown in prison and he, and the early church prays that he would be released. And God does, opens up the jail. Peter just walks out, angel leads him out. Direct answer to prayer. That would be a yes, you know? And then you have other times where Paul Paul is praying and he's, he's asking, he, he wants to go to Asia. I mean, here's a missionary, he's planting churches, he's sharing the gospel with the lost. I mean, all of these things are pretty revealed in God's word. Like these are good things to do. And Paul's wanting to go to Asia Minor, he's wanting to go to Asia to spread the gospel, to plant churches. And God tells him no. 
I mean, there's a clear revelation that God gives him and says, no, that's not where I have for you. And so he leads him otherwise. You see, sometimes that there's, there's a delay. Mary and Martha, right? They're praying, they're, they're longing for, their, for Jesus to come and to heal Lazarus. Lazarus is dying, in the process of dying. And they're begging, they're begging that Jesus would come, that, that God would, would heal their brother. And it's, wait, all right? Jesus waits three days and then he comes and then he resurrects Lazarus so that his glory might be revealed in an even more prominent way. And so sometimes our prayers are answered and God says, just wait, I got something better that you don't see. And there's some ways that God answers our prayers and it's yes, but it's gonna look different. Paul, he has a thorn in his flesh and he has begged God in prayer three times saying, God, please, please remove this thorn. And you gotta believe Paul's heart in that is remove this thorn that I would be more effective for ministry. Remove this thorn that I would be a more useful vessel for you. And he pleads. And notice that Paul didn't get an answer immediately, right? I mean, but, but, but God speaks to him and he says, his answer is, that, right? What, what's Paul really asking is that give me reprieve, take this burden away. And, and God answers, yes, but it's gonna look different. Instead, I'm going to give you my overcoming grace. I'm going to give you my grace that is sufficient for your problem right now. And so it looks different than what he asked. So God answers prayer, but sometimes it's not always as we understand. Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It is laying hold of his willingness. Therefore, nothing we ask for lies beyond the power of God except that which lies beyond his will, his purpose, or his plan. Let us ask. All right. We're going to get into the really complicated part now. So he talks here about, uh, he says, I want you to pray for some things. And then there's something that he doesn't notice. He says, he's not commanding us not to pray for this brother. And he's not telling us to pray. He's saying, listen, I don't recommend praying because it's not going to be effective. And so he says that there, he kind of puts it in two ways. There's a sin that leads to death. And then there's a sin that doesn't lead to death. And so a lot of times we read that and we're like, what in the world? Who is he talking about? What does he mean that there's a sin that leads to death? Is he talking about that there are some sins that are worse than others? You know, that, well, if you really mess up, God's gonna like, you know, he's gonna, he's gonna let you have it. You know, or is he talking about a non-Christian? Is he talking about, you know, somebody who's blasphemed the Holy Spirit? And I read three different commentators and all three commentators had different responses on this. Okay, and so there's like a key that we've lost. And so like we're going to approach this, but we approach this verse with great humility, okay? Because there are people that love the Lord that genuinely differ and disagree upon this. Okay, so usually there are about four options for it. Okay, first, some people think that, uh, that this person is a, is a Christian, right? Because notice it says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask God, right? So in this, he's saying that there's a Christian that's committing a sin, not leading to death, and that he shall ask God. And God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. And then he says, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Okay, just read that. Hopefully that's a little bit clearer, but he talks about that there's four options. One, some people think that, that what he's talking about, this sin that leads to death, is a very heinous sin. 
you know, outright murder or rape or just this really heinous sin. Um, I personally, I don't think that that's it. I don't think that he's elevating one sin above another. Although we do see in the gospel accounts, Jesus talks about that the Pharisees committed a greater sin because they hardened their hearts. They were given greater revelation. And because of their greater revelation, their hardness of heart had a greater effect. Sin can have different effects, even though all sin is equal and it all separates us from God. Does that make sense? The effects of me jaywalking are going to be a little different than the effects of killing somebody. Okay? So sin has different effects, even though it all equally separates. Now, the second one that some people think is that they think that this is talking about apostasy or someone that um, said that they were in the faith but, but left the faith. You know, is denying Christ. Now, I don't think this is it either. Why? Because John is very, very clear that when you are a Christian, you cannot lose your salvation. That when you are a child of God, God does not give you up. And so what happened is that these people that were in the church that said that they were Christians and then left, John wrote earlier in 1 John 2, he says that it was revealed that they weren't actually of us. They actually weren't Christians. I've known several people in my life that it breaks my heart dearly, that it seemed like on all the external features that they were believers, but they left and their life demonstrates now that there was something that they did not know. There was something that they were, they were not truly connected with the Lord. And this is what Judas was. I mean, from all apparent purposes, you would have looked at Judas and said, oh, of course, he's one of the disciples. But it was revealed that there was something that wasn't true in him. And so too, there, there are times, but I don't think that this is what it's talking about, someone that has apostatized. Third, some people think that what this is talking about is blaspheming the Holy Spirit. All right? And what that means, blaspheming the Holy Spirit, is it means to harden your heart against the Holy Spirit. And this is what every non-Christian does. Right? If you're sitting here and you're scared, you're like, have I committed blaspheming the Holy Spirit? You haven't. If you're worried about it, you haven't done it. Okay, but, but if you've, this is what non-Christians do, or, or someone, you know, the Pharisees did this. God's truth, God's revelation became very evident to them. It was very clear, and they said, I'm good. I don't want it, and they rejected it. And what this means is that you're not able to be forgiven because you've rejected forgiveness. When you have a debt and someone offers to pay it, and you say, I'm good, you're going to pay the debt. And that's ultimately what that, what that means. Some people think it's that. I, I don't personally because I think he's talking about a brother. If he's talking about someone that committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, he has to be talking about a non-Christian. I think that he's talking about a brother. He's talking about a Christian here. And I think that what he's saying, he's saying that someone has done something and that God is physically going to take their life. Personally, I don't think that it's talking about a spiritual life, that they're going to face spiritual damnation. I think that what he's talking about here is that there is a believer that has been walking in unrepentant sin over a very long period and it gets to the point where God says, I'm taking out the game. And he, he removes physical life from them. And we see this in a couple different instances. The first one we see, and the most clear one we see, is in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul's writing, and there's a group of people that they've hardened their heart. They're walking in unrepentant sin. And they are demonstrating this because when they take communion, they're, they're taking communion. They're getting drunk while they're doing communion. They're, they're, uh, they're saying, well, you, you people over there, you're poor. You can eat communion. You can have it over here. We're going to have a feast. And they were dividing the body of Christ by that. And, and Paul says, this is why some of you are sick and some of you have died. And so he warns that there, there are Christians at a time that their heart is so hardened, they're in such unrepentant sin, that God says, I'm taking you, and he removes physical life from them. We also see this potentially in Ananias and Sapphira. You know, this one is a little bit more of a questionable one. But what you see there is that, you see, there's, whether they're Christians or not, there, there's a hardness of heart there that comes, and that they, they grieve the Holy Spirit, they lie to the Holy Spirit, and God takes their life. God removes their life from them. And so, what is... We hear this and you're like, so what in the world does this mean for me? 
What this means for us is it means that you should not be apathetic when you're living a life of sin. That you should not be like, well, it's all good. God will just forgive me. Listen, God loves us, but there are times where God might take our life. God, God is gracious. And in his kindness, sometimes he removes that so there would not be a, a hindrance to the witness of the church, to the witness of his goodness and his grace. And so what this means for us is it means that confess your sins, repent of your sins, don't be apathetic. Don't be indifferent about it. Now, the clear instructions of this is that what this means is that if you see someone committing sin, don't gossip about them, right? I mean, half the time we see somebody that is in sin in the church and we like immediately be like, hey, did you see this person? Like, I can't believe what they were doing. Did you hear what they just said? And that's not at all what, what, what John says. He says, if you see your brother in sin, what do you do? You pray for him. The first person you talk to about that person's sin is Jesus. You go to, you go to Christ and you, you intercede for that person. And he says, listen, there are real things that happen when we intercede for our brothers and our sisters in Christ. He says that there are some times where God will restore people. Can you think about that? Think about it. You see someone that's in brokenness, that's in sin, and you say, you know what? I'm gonna commit. I'm gonna commit for the next three months. I'm gonna pray for them. Occasionally, I'm gonna fast for them. There are people that, that I know that the Lord is convicting that I need to do that for. I need to do that for because probably years ago, Colin, man, Colin, like really, um, I was struggling with a sin and Colin came to me and he was like, you know, I, I took part, I failed in that because I didn't pray for you. And that stuck with me because that, what that means is it means that we are each other's bearers. We are each other's brothers and sisters and we fight together as a family that doesn't mean that, oh, you're struggling over there, have fun, good luck, right? What it means is it means that you're struggling, I'm called to step in. And part of what that means is it means that I am to be in prayer for you. I'm to be broken for you. I'm to bring your struggle before the Lord consistently because God hears and God answers prayer. Do we have that heart for one another? You know, one of the times we lie the most is when people ask us to pray and we say, I'm praying for you. And I, I get convicted about that. Half the time I'm like, let's just pray now. You know, I just I want to pray right now because I don't want to say something that's not true. And so that's, that's some of the clear teaching of this text is that we are called to pray for one another. We're called to be broken for one another. We're not called to gossip about each other. We're called to fight together. Moving on. So verse 18, next thing, we can know that it is possible for us to have victory over sin. Verse 18, it says, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. What he's saying here is he's saying, listen, it is possible to overcome sin. And some of us, we have been struggling, you've been struggling with the same sin for years, and you struggle to believe that. You struggle to believe that God can, can have victory over your sin through your life. And he says that what, part of what that looks like is it, it starts when we're born again that we have been given new life. And because we have a new father, a new origin, that gives us new strength. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That idea of new creation, metamorphosis. It's, it's the same word that we use for when a, uh, a caterpillar comes in to a cocoon, a chrysalis, and then transforms into a butterfly. And this is the idea is God transforms us into something that's new, something that has new longings, new desires. C.S. Lewis says it's like this. God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. 
It is not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. God wants to transform who we are and how he does this, how he does this is that he gives us new appetites. He gives us new joys. He gives us new pleasures. Man, when I look at my journey in Christ, what it has been is it has been one of seeing and and hating and being disgusted by sin more and more and seeing and loving and delighting in the goodness of God and his will in my life more and more. And that's what God is doing in us is that he has made us these new creatures, these new creations that have new longings and desires that begin to hate what we used to eat on, what used to nourish us and feed us. We begin to see as disgusting and we find this new food that God gives us as joyful, as delightful, as nourishing, as sustaining. And it's this process of God weaning us off of the old and feeding us more and more of this new food. And that this is where our victory over sin is found. It's not found in our strength. It's not found in us trying harder. It's found in God changing what we long for, what we find beautiful, what we want our life to be about as he changes these fundamental parts. And it starts with belief. It's not primarily about behavior. It starts with what you believe. Because you can articulate, but what you really believe is lived out through your life. And so what do you believe That's why we keep talking about believing and preaching the gospel to yourself daily because it informs what you believe and that will transform your behavior. And so you can have victory over sin. One of the biggest things in my life I know is, and I struggled with with pornography for a very long time. And one of the things that the Lord had to teach me before before the Lord started to bring victory into my life over that is that he had to develop a, a habit of confession and repentance. Man, so many years, I got tired of telling on myself. I got tired, and I'm sure my accountability partners got tired of me coming and confessing the same thing. But the Lord was doing something deeper in me than just rescuing me or just delivering something. He was developing this behavior, this pattern that said, I don't care how many times I fall into this. Every single time, I will confess and repent. Every single time, I will come clean to the Lord because there's a, there's a greater work that God is doing. And maybe for you, that is what God wants to do is God wants to replace this pride that says, I can do it with this humility that confesses, I can't. I can't, but you can. And I, every time I fall, I will confess it and rely upon your grace and rely upon your strength. God wants to heal you. There's some of you that deeply need to hear this. God wants to restore you. God wants to redeem you. And if you do not believe this, you will continue to run around the same circus wheel that you've been running around. You have to believe that you need to confess and repent. And that is the most profound thing that you can do before you start to see this overwhelming victory in your life. God will bring the victory, confess and repent. And he promises that in this, that God will protect us. He'll protect us from the enemy. John 10, 14 through 15, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Do you believe this? God knows you and he protects you. He stands in your stead. When the enemy wants to try to claim you, when it seems like it's your darkest moment, he stands in that stead for you. And he says, I've taken that one. I've taken the burdens of that one. That falls on me and you can't get through me. He protects us. Number four, we can know that we belong to God. Verse 19, it says, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. What this means, right? It's this picture of belonging. 
He wants us to know that we belong. You guys ever seen the, the old Home Alone show, right? Where he's left on his own and he does not belong and is, very, is made very much aware and then they come back and there's this, there's this sense of intimacy when they return that they, they realize that love. See, God never forgets us. God never is like leaves home and is like, well, I lost somebody. You know, like God always has us with him. God, God, we belong with him. And this, it's this idea of acceptance, this, this warmth, this love, this care. And I hope you've had experiences of that in your life where you feel like because of the sin that you're struggling, you feel like you're isolated. You feel like you can't be real with anybody that you're wearing a mask. And God says, you belong to me. You belong to me. Take off your mask. I see straight through it. Welcome into my kingdom. You are my son. You are my daughter. And it's this one of family. This one of immense care. I'm not letting go of you. I'm not kicking you out. You're not going anywhere. I'm in this for the long haul. We belong to him. The last thing is that we can know him who is true, him who is real, in verses 20 through 21. It says, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. It talks about that the purpose of Jesus' coming is to give. Jesus came not simply to require something from humanity, but instead to give it. He came to give understanding. And this understanding was for the purpose of relationship. He wanted us to know who he is and what he's done that we might be drawn near to him. And it says, we know him who is true. A, a better translation of that is that we know him who is real, who is substantial. And what, that, what he's contrasting is, is that, right, the false teachers, they had this illusion of Jesus. They had this fake Jesus. And he's saying, we know the true Jesus. We know the real Jesus, the one who actually exists, not a figment of our imagination. And this is what he warns. Why, why does he go and he says, little children, keep away from idols. What is an idol? An idol is a false God. It's something that isn't God that we make to be God. It's an illusion. Maybe success is your God. And you say, I have to be successful. Maybe that's in your work. Maybe that's in your family. But you say, man, I have to be successful. That's an illusion because there's never gonna come a point at which you're going to be able to rest. Instead, it's going to eat you up. And he says, listen, turn away from this illusion, these false gods, and turn to the real one, who is Jesus. Maybe the, the illusion is that, you know, is it, I don't know, family, or maybe it's work, or, you know, maybe it's, it's a relationship somewhere in your life. You know, all of us, we have these different, these different idols that we struggle with. And he wants us to turn away from these things and turn to the real and living God. That's why he, he warns us. He says, come to, come to Christ. Come to Christ because he is satisfying. In him, in him, you will not be destroyed. Instead, you will find life. Every single idol, it makes promises that it can't keep. Now, I don't know, I experience that. There's sometimes where I think that, you know, and, and we do it in, in occasions, you know, where we go off and we think that, man, if I just had this, if I just, you know, if I had this experience, then it would satisfy my heart. If I had this, you know, grade point average, if I had this amount of success in work, then finally I would be satisfied. And every time my heart slips into that, even slightly, it, it empties it. It feels like it's sand, like salt water. Like it, it, 
you think you're satisfied only to realize that actually it's making you sick. And he says, man, come to Christ. Realize and find your identity in him. In him because, man, when you taste of him and see that he is good, that will satisfy. That will satisfy. And so as we, as we close, as Ashley comes up and leads us in worship, I just want to leave you with, with three applications, three applications from the book of 1 John. The first one we've talked about is that do you know that you're in him? God wants you to have confidence that you're in him. And so if you're here and you don't know that you have a relationship with him, you, you listen to that and you're thinking, Trevor, I'm not really sure. Maybe I walked an aisle, I prayed a prayer one time, but there isn't a present posture of confession and repentance in my life. Then I would ask that you would come and that you would, you would confess Jesus, that you would confess the sin that you've been struggling with. Whether that's right up here at the altar, whether that's at your seat, and not only that, not only you would just confess it, but that you would make it known, that you would, you would come, whether that's to me or Pastor Colin at some point, you know, that you would, you would schedule a meeting with one of us or, or meet with a brother or sister in the Lord and confess and make known that sin. That is one of the means that God rescues us and heals us. Don't hide. Second, what is God calling you to pray for with greater expectancy? There are things that God wants to do in this church and God wants to do in this world and he's asking his people to pray. And so what is it that God is calling you to pray for? We've done bless. What is it that God's wanting to pray for in your neighborhood? So often I think that God doesn't answer prayer because we don't ask. We don't ask big things because we don't really understand or believe that we serve a big God and that God can do immensely more than we can ask or expect. And so what is God calling you to pray for? What is God calling you to ask for that aligns with his will, that he is longing to pour out and to answer? And third, are you experiencing freedom and overcoming sin? How is God wanting to set you free? Let us pray. Father, thank you so much for this book. Thank you for our time together as we learn, Lord, that you, you don't want us to be unsure. You want us to have confidence and certainty, Lord, that, um, that we know you and that we are your children, that you are our Father, and that that, man, that erases insecurity, erases pride, erases uh, depression, God, it brings the sense of security, the sense of love, um, a sense of peace and joy. And so, God, I pray that that would happen, God, that we would know that we know you, that we would know that we know you. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org.